Our gospel lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 12. We're reading verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, the last of these commandments, we ask for your help. May you give us your spirit for understanding and application, that we may know what it is to walk in your way and to delight in your truth. Lead us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1886, Leo Tolstoy published a short story. It was entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's a question. He tells the story of Pahom. Pahom was a man who loved land. He thought his security and his future lie in the ownership of large tracts of land. And so he set out to own as much as possible. The story is about his desire for acquisition. He even says at one point in the story, if I had plenty of land, I shouldn't fear the devil himself. This was going to keep him safe. Now he moves to a new village, and he is beginning to inquire land to, be, to build his farm. And he learns of a simple-minded family. They are the Bashkirs. They own large amounts of land, but being simple-minded, Pahom thought that perhaps he could take advantage of them. He would use them, purchase land from them for a cheap price. He approaches them, and the Bashkirs come up with a strange deal. They say that for a thousand rubles, they would make this arrangement. Pahom could take a spade and drag it around their property. He could begin at sunrise, and as long as he made a complete circle by sunset, he would own all the property inside of that circle. Pahom was delighted. This was the deal of the century. He was going to take these poor, ignorant, simple-minded people for everything they were worth. He could drag a spade. He was going to do it. At sunrise, the Bashkirs welcome him and send him out, and he begins dragging his spade. As the day wore on, he began to think that he needed to circle back in. But he would see one more field, or one more stand of trees, or one more lake, and he would drag his spade around that too. 
The day was coming to an end. Shadows were beginning to lengthen, and he realized that he must now hurry because he was a long ways from the start. And so he began sprinting with his spade. He ran harder and faster and longer than ever he had before. And just as the sun set in the west, he arrived to the cheers of the Bashkirs. Here he was finishing the circle just as the sun sets. A massive amount of property was to be given to him for a thousand rubles. The family is cheering, and the problem was is that Pahom couldn't hear it. As he finished his circle, he dies of a heart attack. The story ends with the servant burying Pahom in a standard six-foot grave, giving answer to the question, how much land does a man need? Precisely six feet. And Tolstoy here, in his masterful way, as only he pretty much can in a short story, takes us into the heart of the Tenth Commandment, what it means to not covet. And he addresses the dangers of inordinate desire when that takes up and possesses us and takes root and hold of us. But for many people, when they hear that we're working through the Ten Commandments, and specifically this one about not coveting, they think that they could never be a Christian, or at least not a good one, because how in the world are you supposed not to desire? Desire seems native to us. It simply comes with being human. How are we supposed to cut that off? It's important at this point to clarify, to qualify something, that when we talk about not coveting, we are talking about the over-desire for things, that perhaps the best translation of the word would be inordinate desire. So it's not simply wanting things, it's the inordinate desire for things that captivates us and pulls us along. This is what the command is after. After all, God made us to be creatures with desires. This is how He formed us. All the way back in Genesis 2 and verse 9, we learned that the creation in the Garden of Eden was pleasant, that it was pleasurable, that this is the way God made it. He built a world to be delighted in, to be enjoyed, for us to engage with, to find things that are beautiful and good. This is part of God's created world. And yet oftentimes for the Christian church, we've not fully recognized that. And we've thought to not be a sinner meant not to enjoy things, not to have desires. And this is not what God is after. He is after something else. And so it's important for us to ask the question, what goes wrong in our desires? Where do our desires get us off track There's two things that we find when we build out this commandment about not coveting from the Scriptures. And the first is this, that our desires go wrong just here when we crave what belongs to our neighbor. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5, this is explained thoroughly even inside the commandment. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, your neighbor's field, your neighbor's servant, your neighbor's ox, or your neighbor's donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. 
And this has been the constant concern, especially of what we call the second table of the law, is to be our regard for our neighbor. That we are not to have an over-desire, a desire to possess what properly belongs to our neighbor. Whether it be to protect his family or to protect his livelihood, we are to be so infatuated with the good of our neighbor that we do nothing to endanger that neighbor. And this is where coveting seeps in because we can begin to compare and desire the things our neighbor has. But where does this exactly come from? What drives this dynamic of jealousy inside of us, where we want our neighbor's stuff, where we want to possess that? When church planting, God gave me the opportunity to have to confront very directly the covetousness that lived inside of my own heart. After moving to Arlington, Virginia to begin a church, there were several other groups that decided to plant churches as well. Now, there were plenty of unchurched people in the area. It's a 24-square-mile area with over 220,000 people, okay? There's a lot of room for mission work, and so this was fine. However, I discovered that there was one plant that there was something wrong in my heart about it. It was a plant of a very large local church, and they had an infinite number of resources. They had large numbers of people. And so the day that this plant started, it was the same Sunday that we were beginning our worship, they had a full-blown church budget and a full-blown sanctuary, a number of people in it. And at times when beginning in church planting, it can feel like you have two wet twigs that you're trying to rub together just as hard as you can to get a flame. And that's what it felt like for me. And definitely when I was comparing my work to that work. And so I began to find that there were different ways that that was leaking out of me. That I was comparing myself to what was happening there and then looking at what was happening here in my own backyard. And it's the common phrase that the grass is always greener. But I had an inordinate affection for what was happening there because I wanted it. I wanted it, and it, it looked good, and it was desirable to me, and it was so far from my present reality. I was discontent with my meager beginnings, forgetting that this is just the work of church planting. This is how it has to start. And this is what happens to us. We begin to play the comparison game. And this is the fuel that drives the dynamic of coveting. When we are discontent with whatever it is, whatever place God assigns us in life, where He has us in that moment, and we begin to look at the prosperity of someone else, and we say, oh, they have it together, or they have it good. Facebook, perhaps, is the mother of all coveting. That which should be in the Bible where we can present ourselves in pictures and statements and we can look like we have it all together. I've never seen someone just lose their stuff on Facebook. Well, I have, but, um, <laughs> but we can groom and cultivate that image and have it look so good and people can spend hours festering in their discontentment looking at everyone else, thinking about how good their life is and how bad theirs is. 
Friends, it's a form of self-pity that ultimately gives rise to coveting. But it's discontentment. It's a lack of trusting God, a want of being satisfied with where God has us in the moment. And this is the fuel that drives our desire and our quest for our neighbor's stuff that can get so unhealthy. And so recognize the rhythms that go on inside of your heart when you find yourself discontent in comparing and looking to someone else's stuff and thinking your life would be better if only. That's where the danger begins with coveting. Now the second piece to this, what goes wrong inside of us with our desires, is that we crave not only what is our neighbor's, but we crave without respect for God. This takes us back to the first sin in the Garden of Eden. If you turn to Genesis 3 with me, the epic story of Eve's encounter with the serpent. In verse 1, the serpent asked, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then focus on verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband." And this is the essential order of things that still go on inside of our hearts, because what we struggle with is to trust that God is good inside of the boundaries that He prescribes for us. That when God tells us how we are to relate to His good gifts inside of the creation, we frequently struggle to say, yes, that boundary that He assigns about how we are to relate to people or to stuff or to things is a good and helpful boundary. Eve didn't believe that God's boundary was good. She was tempted to go outside of those bounds, to take what God had prohibited. She took into her possession what God said was not available to her. It was fundamentally a lack of trust and faith and obedience. And this is what goes on inside of us in our cravings and in our desires, in our over-desires. We don't trust the boundaries that God assigns. Now, this can work out in areas like money and alcohol. It can work out in areas like clothing or power. It can work out in areas of sex or security. But when we crave and we don't respect the boundaries that God assigns inside of Scripture, we are in danger then of the good gifts of God that He doesn't prohibit us from desiring and enjoying, where those good gifts become something very evil. They become very wrong. An inordinate desire and passion for those things takes up residence and takes control. And the practical question for us is this. 
How do you know if your desires are out of line? How do you know when it's begun to take possession of you? And this is the question, the diagnostic question that we all have to ask ourselves, I think, to help us understand if our desires are getting the better of us. Does my love for this thing lead me to disobey God? It's the place to begin. Does my love for this thing lead me to disobey a very clear commandment of God? As we've seen working through the commands, when we break one of the commandments, it's only because we've broken the first one, to love the Lord our God, that we are to have no other gods in front of Him, and that we only steal because we want something more than we want God. And so it's helpful for us when it comes to desires, which is connected to all the commandments. It's the initial fuel that feeds it all, that we only steal because we have not disciplined that desire to obtain something, to want something. We only commit adultery because we're committed that our lives would be better if we had someone else's wife, that this is the way it works, and it works out inside of us. And does my love for something lead me to disobey God? Ask yourself that simple question. But what happens to us, though, in the grip of covetousness or the grip of inordinate desire? If we see that what God prohibits for us is that we're not to crave without respect for Him, going outside the boundaries, or we're not to crave what properly belongs to our neighbor— What does it look like, though, when desire, inordinate desire, has us in its grips? You can turn to Luke 12, which was our gospel lesson this morning. Jesus tells a parable that's very graphic about what inordinate desire looks like. He's answering a man's request that he instruct his brother to divide the inheritance with him. Jesus says, take care, be careful, unless you think your life exists in possessions. And then he tells a story. He tells a story of a man who owned land. He was a rich man, and his land produced plentifully. Now, anyone familiar with the world of agriculture, especially in the ancient world, knows that land only produces plentifully by a mysterious process, and that God is the one who has to give, that for a seed to go into the ground and they be, excuse me, be protected by everything, all the endangering things that can happen, that that is a miracle. And so for an entire harvest to be successful, to produce plentifully, this is a gift from God. But note this rich man's response. He has received plentifully from God, and he thinks to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. This was his response to his plenty. And he comes up with this plan. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And then importantly, in verse 19, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. 
And this is what happens inside of inordinate desire, that the thing of our affection possesses us. And what happens is we begin to serve that affection, that what this man found his security in was the plenty and the produce, that he knew that he had a secure future. He had everything that he needed, and so he wanted to hold on to that. So what he begins to serve is that produce and that plenty, and then how could he keep it safe? And there's a certain train of common sense inside of the man's thinking. And Jesus is saying that common sense makes no sense at all. That what that is is idolatry. That this man and his inordinate desire for security, that this was ultimately his idol, has ended up serving his stuff rather than being rich towards God. And this is where God's good gifts the plenty that God gives us can take us down a very wrong road. And so, friends, we don't deny God's good gifts inside the creation. And we don't say there's not pleasure and joy. But we're exceedingly careful about the danger of God's good gifts. That we don't let those things displace God and disorder our love and affections for God. Augustine wrote a manual on training young preachers. It was called Teaching Christianity. And he used a metaphor and analogy that I believe is very helpful. And he said that God's gifts, they're like a seafaring vessel. And those gifts are to deliver you to a destination. But what happens to the human heart is we become captivated not with the destination, but we become captivated with the vessel. And so God gives you a child, or He gives you a wife, or He gives you wealth, or He gives you a plentiful harvest. And it's like that vessel. It's intended to be a gift to you that directs your heart to Him, that you give thanksgiving, that you recognize that He gives you everything. That in Him you live and you move and you have your being. And so you render thanks to Him for all He gives. But rather, what happens to us is we become captivated with the vessel. We begin to try to protect it and keep it and hold it to ourselves. And we're not thinking that that vessel is intended to take us to a place. And so we forget that. And friends, this is what Augustine called the disordering of our loves. And things begin to displace God. His good gifts we use against Him. And this is what happens to us in the grip of inordinate desire. Reinhard Huter, who's a German theologian, writes this, Without desire we would cease to be human. Without God as desire's ultimate end, we become inhumane. This is where it drops us off. We can become inhumane because of the affections that take up place in our hearts when our affections are ultimately not trained on God and that His good gifts aren't an avenue and a channel and a means of enjoying Him. So what is the antidote? 
at this point, we're sufficiently bruised. Who hasn't over-desired? Who hasn't participated in a world of covetousness? What are we supposed to do? Two things that Paul specifically addresses. You can turn to Colossians chapter 3. What we are to do about our coveting. Paul also addresses this helpfully in Ephesians 5 in a very similar way. But the first thing to do in the face of our desires and our coveting is that we are to put them to death. And I know that most of you are thinking, that's completely unhelpful. (laughs) I know I'm supposed to put them to death. The question is how? How do I put desire to death? Look what Paul says in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, cut it out, put it to death. But what is so important for us here is to know that we are not left to our own resources to put this to death. Look what Paul has just written in verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. This is so monstrously important for the Christian life in hearing God's commands. Because God doesn't just save you and then send you out on your own to pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps. He tells you to put these things to death. Yes, there is a command. But He says that you have already died. That when you put your faith in Jesus and you're united to Him, that His Spirit dwells in you and something has happened to you. That you have participated in the death of Jesus and you've also been raised with Jesus. That there is new life now for you. That you've died to those old things. And then because of that death, what can you now do? You can now put all those old things to death. You see, something definitively has happened to everyone who is in Christ. We have died and we've been set free from the reign and control of sin. And now by the help of God's Spirit, and because of what Jesus has done, we can begin to work against those forces that can seem so strong in us. Look in verse 7. In these you too once walked. In other words, you used to be captivated by these sins when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And we can only put them to death because we have been put to death. Christ has done something definitively for us. Now, when my boys were young, I used to use a certain logic with them. They had just had a young sister, and we needed their help. Three-on-two is not always friendly. Three-on-one is definitely not friendly, especially when one is in diapers in need of being fed. And so the logic that I would use with them is I would tell them, you are now a big boy. I would make a declaration. This is what's true of you. And they were little boys who were emerging into big boys. And I would say, you are a big boy. And then I would ask them to do something. 
And if they chafed, I would remind them, you are a big boy. And this is what big boys do. And you know what they would do? Scurry along. Because they wanted so desperately to be a big boy. They wanted to be like daddy. They wanted to be big boys. And so tell me what it is. Assign me that label. And then I will run in that way. And then sometimes when they would get in trouble doing something silly, I would look at them and say, you are a big boy. I want you to be a big boy. Live in that way. And friends, this is the way God's grace works with us. He says, you have died. Or you could state it positively, you are free. In Christ, this is His gift to you. That yes, He's forgiven your sins, and then He sets you free from the power and control of sin. You are free. You have died. Now live as those who are free. Put to death covetousness. Put to death inordinate desire. And know that God in His tender mercy gives you every resource to do so. He's there to help you. This is the first piece of the antidote. Now the second that we find tied to this in Colossians chapter 3 is that we are to learn to give thanks to God for all things. You find down at the end of chapter 3 a repetitive theme where he binds all of these things together. In verse 15, it says, And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And Paul is here building on what he has also written in Romans. And when he talks about the primordial sin of human beings, our very first fault, he says that we fail to honor and give thanks to God, and we worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. And here, in the context of speaking of covetousness, Paul says that we are to be thankful, that we are to give thanks to God in everything, that we are to receive all that God gives to us in gratitude and thankfulness. And friends, to put coveting to death, the positive side of this is to learn to receive things appropriately from God. That unlike the rich man, when we receive plenty is that we give thanks to God and recognize that comes from Him. That it wasn't of our own making. It's not because of our industry. It's not because we were better farmers. But rather, it's because God chose to give plenty. And so we want to respond appropriately. And it is in receiving God's gifts, whatever measure it may come in, that we learn contentment. And we are satisfied with what God allots to us. And this cuts coveting at the root. This is where that comparison and where that grass is greener thing grows inside of us. But when we can be thankful to God for what He does give, even in times where it's meager, that's when we can receive. That's when we know what it is to cut out inordinate desire. Because what I learned about myself in that first year of church planting 
was that I couldn't receive from God the good things that He did do. God was sending me many gifts that year. He was sending financial gifts. He was sending people. He was sending a culture inside of a church that was good and life-giving. And I couldn't receive it. Why? Because I was discontent. I hadn't learned to receive God's good gifts that He was pouring out on me. And that I hadn't learned and trained myself to think that way. And friends, this is what has to go on in us to receive gratefully from God. This is the beginning of the end of covetousness in us because all the breaking of the commandments ultimately begins with those desires in our hearts that become inordinate and become fixed on the wrong things. And we don't want to be like Pahom. Running a race to acquire everything we have and missing exactly what's important. That's where covetousness ultimately drops us off. All you get is six feet. There's a one-to-one ratio in this room. But for those who respond to the grace of God, and know that grace, and then seek to live in a manner that pleases Him by the power of the gospel. That six feet's not the last word. And there's something greater for us. That God will speak a better word, and He'll raise you from that six feet, and He'll make your body new, and He'll recreate your world. And it'll be a world of pleasure and desire and joy aesthetic beauty, things to appreciate, glory in in ways that we can't even understand. Paul gets lost in this and says that we can't even imagine what it's like. And he says that from within a creation that's already so shot full of goodness. That's what your God has for you. And so ask Him to teach you to desire in the way that He would have you. Let Him train you in that. Let that be your prayer.